Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I've had a really good week. It's been nice. Nothing super exciting, which is, you know, how I really like those weeks. Yeah, I feel like things are back to normal, kind of, yeah. in the new year. So yeah, we're just kind of doing our thing, and it's kind of boring. No, it's not that boring. Actually, Mandy, breaking news. We have breaking news that is very exciting. I wish I had enough sense to edit in like a very important like Morse code. Not Morse code. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you mean. Yes. Okay. Breaking news, everyone. This is my enthusiastic voice. Mandy and I are going to do a live show, like just Mandy and I. We don't know if the people have demanded it or wanted it, but we're doing one in Chicago. Are you so excited, Mandy? I am super excited. So that's a thing that we're doing. I know we always kind of said, like, we're not going to do that. Like, we'll never do that. But I don't know. That's mostly insecurities (laughs) and thinking, like, nobody would want to come. And we still have those same insecurities, which uh, (laughs) we're going to have to work through. But it's so exciting. It's going to be at the Chicago City Winery on March 27th, 2020. So just in a couple months. That's a Friday at 8 p.m. Tickets are going to go on sale this Friday when you're listening to this. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, if you're listening to it the next week, guess what? You're already a week behind. But they'll go on sale on January 17th at noon central time. Mandy, I'm super pumped. So exciting. I am too. I am very, very excited. So this will be our first live show and we're going very far away from home and I'm very excited to go to Chicago and yes, I'm very pumped about all of it. And we already have a case picked out and it's very moms of murder. It's perfect. And we are so excited. And so please check out the link in our show notes. If you're in the Chicago land area, we hope to see you there. It'll be so fun. And You'll either see us at our very first show that does amazing and we just have this wonderful life of <laughs> live shows, or you get to watch a train wreck in person. <laughs> <laughs> so either way, you can say you were there. So <laughs> make sure you check out the link. It will be in our show notes. And like I said, it will go on sale on January 17th, noon central time for the March 27th show. Mandy, are you ready to get into the episode? Yes, I am. Absolutely. All right. So when I say 1995, how many years ago does that sound like to you? Maybe 5, 10, 15? Tops. It's really painful to even think about. Yeah. Well, it was actually 25 years ago, which is just mind-blowing. And this is the time when VHS tapes still ruled. The Soup Nazi made his debut. George Clooney had the Caesar cut and pagers were still a thing. So if you have no idea what we're talking about, you could possibly be under the age of 25. But if you know exactly what we're talking about, then we can recap real world together after this episode. So today we're going to be discussing a case that took place on July 31st, 1995 in Roebuck, South Carolina, a small town of around 2,000 people. And before we get into this week's story, we're going to talk a little about Roebuck, South Carolina in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Roebuck, South Carolina has a population of around 2,200 people, as Mandy was saying, as of the 2010 census. Roebuck is located in the northwestern part of the state. By the way, anytime I talk direction, I always use my hands (laughs) like nobody's (laughs) watching this. But it's in the northwestern part of the state, and it's very close to the North Carolina line. As it's a town of about 2,000 people, of course, again, I had a hard time finding information, but I went a little further to the county of Spartanburg, where Roebuck is located. Spartanburg, the city, is sometimes referred to as Hub City. And no, this isn't because there's a cult of middle-aged women sipping on pumpkin spice lattes and chatting about their hubs to all their gals. It's <laughs> it's named the Hub City because of the numerous railroad lines that meet in the city and make its landscape look like it may have been decorated with wheel hubs. That's quite a sight, actually. I saw some pictures and I was like, huh, okay, that's 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 what it is. It really does look like that. Yeah, I can't picture it in my head, so (laughs) I feel like I need to go look that up. (laughs) You really should. Take a second, pause us, look at it, and come right back. Please finish this episode. So Spartanburg's original purpose was to be used exclusively as a courthouse when there were these frontier disputes. The area of South Carolina where Spartanburg resides was part of a very fringe and wild area of the frontier of the U.S., and to this day, the courthouse sits in the middle of town. So while BMWs are famously engineered in Germany, the X3, X4, X5, X6, and X7 sports activity vehicles are actually manufactured right in Spartanburg County. 
Not only does their only North American manufacturing plant reside in Spartanburg County, it's there they offer what is known as the BMW Performance Driving School. And I tried to make several jokes with this, and all I came up with was like almost a poop joke, and it didn't even work that well because of BM. And so I really have nothing. (laughs) So (laughs) lastly, Spartanburg County is hopping when professional wrestling tours come around. And it's been a very popular place for these stops to be made. And it's so popular, in fact, you can watch wrestlers when they come to the area, but you can also train there to become a professional wrestler at American Pro Wrestling. And that's really, yeah, it's kind of cool. So Mandy, that's really all I've got this week. And we'll get back to the episode. But first... (laughs) Oh, no, Mandy. Do you smell what the moms are cooking? (laughs) (laughs) I can't with this. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Trust me, I have to live with being the person that said that. It's really terrible. (laughs) Please, please continue. Dana Satterfield was known around Roebuck not only for her beauty, but also for her kindness and her warm personality. She had the quintessential 90s look with these perfectly feathered bangs and just this big 90s hairdo. When I was living in the 90s, I was obviously very young, but I remember like my mom's hairstyle very specifically in that time period. And it was just that like very, I don't know, she would do this weird thing with her curling iron and flip her bangs up and over and make this big wave thing on her head. So yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know if that was like the look in the 90s, but I just remember my mom having that and that's what I pictured. We used to do, have I talked about this elephant ears is what I always called it, where you'd like pick up the side of your hair and then just (laughs) spray Aquanet right there on both sides and it looked like you had elephant ears and that was huge. (laughs) I had to do this like fake modeling thing. It was not even kind of real and they just needed... kids, I guess. And I had to walk down and I remember asking my mom, like, please make sure I have my elephant ears. Please make sure like, (laughs) I need it if this is going to be a successful show. (laughs) So Dana was also a wife, a mother and a business owner. She met her husband, Mike, when she was just 19 years old and he owned and ran a successful HVAC company in Roebuck. They were sort of an odd couple. Dana was a petite woman and Mike was quite a bit larger than she was. So seeing them together was kind of interesting because there was such a big size disparity. After a few years, the couple married and had two children named Ashley and Brandon. Family was incredibly important to Dana and she wanted to make sure that she was home as often as possible while the children were young. She was a hairdresser by trade, and during her children's formative years, Dana worked for different salons in the area. Her goal was eventually to have a job where she could have a set schedule and could just clock out at the end of the day and be free to go home and spend the rest of the evenings with her family. As the children got older and became more and more independent, Dana opened her own hair salon, which had actually been a lifelong dream of hers. The salon was called Roebuck Hair and Tanning Salon and was located off of State Highway 221. The salon was actually a converted trailer that sat behind a liquor store but was easily accessible from the highway. Dana's husband Mike supported Dana from the very beginning. He used his handyman skills to help her set up the salon and he even went so far as installing the water heater which will actually play a key role in this story. As you can imagine, with any new business, you don't just swing open the doors and have clients walk in. You have to spend time and build up a client base. Dana worked really hard to build up her client base and often stayed late into the evening to accommodate different schedules of her new clients. Because of this, it wasn't unusual for Dana to be at the salon alone. Clients would often check in on her as they drove by late into the evening. And the salon seemed to be not only a place to get a great haircut, but also a place to stop in and be treated like a part of Dana's family. Her children, Ashley and Brandon, remember spending quite a bit of time at the salon and watching their mom just working in her element. Dana balanced motherhood and business ownership really well, but her marriage began to suffer and Dana and Mike soon separated. The separation seemed amicable, and Dana moved about half a mile away from the family home during this separation, so the kids would still be close to both parents. July 31st, 1995 was like any other day for Dana. On that particular Monday, she got to the salon and set up for the day and got right to work. Around 6.30 p.m., a door-to-door saleswoman named Diane Harris stopped by the salon and sold Dana some cleaning supplies. 
Dana bought a bottle of cleaner from her, and then Diane went on her way to find other businesses that might be interested in buying her products. Around 8.11, Diane passed by the salon again, and she looked through the window and saw Dana in there cleaning using this new product that she had just purchased from her. So they waved at each other, and then Diane continued on her way. Around 8.30 p.m., Diane was ready to kind of hang it up for the night, and she returned to the front of the salon to wait for her ride. Dana's car was still parked out front, but that's when Diane noticed something strange. The lights that were just on inside of the salon were now off, and she thought that was a little odd because, you know, as she said, as we just said, she just looked in there and saw her cleaning. So it was a little strange that all of a sudden, you know, there's no sign of her, and now all the lights in the salon are off. So she considered entering the salon herself when she suddenly heard loud thumps coming from inside. Moments later, she heard a loud crash and saw a person jump out of the window. So Diane was panicked and took off running to a nearby liquor store to call for help. So at the same time that Diane is in this liquor store trying to call for help, this mysterious man had taken off running and accidentally ran into this same liquor store where Diane was. So Diane got a really good look at him, and then they both took off in different directions. At around 8.40 p.m., just 10 minutes after Diane saw the man leaving the salon, a client of Dana's named Ken Smith was also passing on State Highway 221. And Ken remembers seeing Dana's car parked outside of the salon that night. As he continued to drive past, he noticed a blue and white Bronco parked on the shoulder of the highway. He recalled that there was a young man standing next to the Bronco with a frantic look on his face. Meanwhile, Diane tried to flag down a motorist to no avail and eventually made it to a neighbor's home where she immediately called the police. There's so many more details to discuss in this story, and we're going to get into all of them after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Cereal is the ultimate go-to meal or snack in my house, but have you ever checked out the amount of sugar and junk that's in your favorite cereal? It's pretty crazy, right? That's why we are so excited to partner with Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is a new cereal company that's found a magical way to recreate those delicious cereals we've all grown up with, but with zero grams of sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. The real magic comes in the fact that it's actually really delicious. Magic Spoon spent over a year with the best chefs and food scientists to recreate your favorite breakfast cereals without all the junk that makes those cereals bad for you. Magic Spoon is gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free, so you can feel good about what you are feeding yourself and your kids. Magic Spoon comes in four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, plus they also offer a variety pack that lets you try them all. Last night, I went with the go-to dinner of cereal at my house and served myself and my family the cocoa-flavored Magic Spoon cereal. It has a rich and delicious chocolate flavor and tastes just like the chocolate cereals I keep in the house. Once my kids ate the last bite, I handed my daughter the box and she said, wait, is that what I just ate? This actually tastes really great. Even an 11-year-old can't believe something that's so good for you can actually taste delicious. If you'd like to try Magic Spoon for your family, go to magicspoon.com murder to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code murder at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com murder and use the code murder for free shipping. What if I told you that my favorite pair of shoes was made out of recycled plastic water bottles, were fully machine washable, and they're also ridiculously comfortable and fashionable too? Well, it's a thing. Rothy's are the perfect shoes for life on the go. They're stylish and comfortable, and they go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts, which makes them the perfect shoe for women and girls with an active lifestyle. One of my favorite things about my Rothy's is the versatility. I ordered a pair of the steel gray sneakers several months ago, and they are still my favorite shoes I've ever owned, and they've been my go-to shoe since the day they arrived. Unlike other shoe brands, Rothy's are as comfortable as walking on clouds right from the get-go. There's really nothing worse than buying an adorable pair of shoes, only to realize after wearing them for 10 minutes that you've made a terrible mistake, and now your heels are blistered for the next four days. But that's not a problem with these shoes. Rothy's are seamlessly knit using thread made from plastic water bottles, so they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right, there is zero break-in period with these shoes. 
But Rothy's doesn't just sell cute sneakers. They come in a range of styles, including loafers, points, and more. If you're like me, then you love a good pair of fun shoes, and Rothy's has playful designs to add fun pops of color to any outfit while still looking polished and professional. When your new favorite shoes need a refresh, you can just toss them in the washing machine and they'll be good as new again. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash moms. Go to R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we talked about Diane running to a neighbor's house and, you know, hearing this, all this stuff going on inside Dana's business and calling the police. And so the first person on the scene that night was the deputy sheriff. He immediately entered the salon through the front door, which was unlocked. He yelled to see if he would get a response, but he heard nothing in return. As he walked towards the back of the salon, he saw Dana. The scene was gruesome and what he described as diabolical and an overkill. The perpetrator acted in a rage and appeared to want to really degrade Dana. He strangled, beat, and raped her, and then tied her half-naked body to the hot water heater in the laundry room. She was strangled with a strap from a purse found in the salon, and this, of course, alerted the detectives to the possibility that this murderer wasn't really necessarily planning to kill her, since the weapon he used was one that was found at the scene and not one he had you know, brought with him. There was also no indication of robbery. Dana's purse and her valuables were still all there. A homicide detective quickly arrived on the scene to try and figure out just what might have happened, as well as who was responsible for this atrocious act. The detective searched the salon from top to bottom, looking for anything that would identify a perpetrator. DNA testing at this time was relatively new. However, the detective on the scene was looking for the smallest piece of evidence. One of the really big issues they ran into when looking for evidence was that the salon is a public place. There are people coming and going all the time. So there's pieces of hair and fingerprints from earlier patrons found scattered throughout the salon. The entire salon was really covered in DNA from many, many people. That has to be so hard to investigate a crime in a place like that because like you don't even think about that. But yeah, there's definitely going to be so much DNA and like so many different people's hair and fingerprints in a place like a hair salon. Right. Yeah. If you've got your home, you know, maybe you have a couple people that, you know, they can pull prints from. But here, how many people are going to be suspects just because their fingerprints, hair, all of that, you know, is found? I can't imagine. You're right. Like how crazy that would be to look for that. Yeah. So even some of the hair that was found on Dana at the time of her murder belonged to some of her previous clients that day. The detectives conducted a rape kit and were able to capture some semen found on Dana which would prove to be vital in this case as it progressed. Although the scene indicated a struggle, all of the blood that was found at the scene belonged to Dana. However, there was one piece of damning evidence found on the water heater, and that was a single fingerprint. The fingerprint, as it turned out, belonged to Mike Satterfield, who was the husband that Dana had previously separated from. So the police focused all of their attention on this fingerprint And one investigator even outright said that whoever left that print was the killer. So he claimed that this person who hooked the purse strap around Dana's neck had to do so at the exact place where the fingerprint was found. As in most murder cases, the police look at the people that are closest to the victim and then kind of fan out from there. And since Mike was Dana's estranged husband, he was immediately suspect number one. However, Diane had actually seen the suspect right after the murder, and as she started working with a police sketch artist, the theory of Mike being the murderer quickly dissipated, really. For one thing, Diane described the man that she saw jumping through the salon window as a young white male with blonde, maybe brownish hair, and blue eyes weighing around 140 to 150 pounds. As mentioned before, Mike would have easily weighed over 200 pounds and would not have been able to fit through this window. So as for this fingerprint, Mike installed the water heater for Dana. So of course his fingerprints were going to be all over it and it made perfect sense for them to be on there and, you know, without any kind of ill intent. Police then began to investigate whether Mike may have actually hired somebody to kill Dana. Dana was murdered on a Monday night, and she was actually scheduled to see a divorce lawyer the following Tuesday morning. So they were thinking, you know, maybe 
with the timing of this. Maybe he didn't do it himself, but maybe he actually had somebody else do it. But as much time as the police put into investigating Mike, they always came up empty. He even took polygraph tests and passed them with flying colors, even when he was asked during the test, you know, flat out, if he had hired anybody to kill his soon-to-be ex-wife. And once again, he passed. Mike had also been home with both of the kids that Monday night, and the children, who were eight and five at the time, were able to confirm this to the police. Dana's murder was a tremendous loss for them, as well as it was for Mike. So if Mike wasn't the killer, then who was it? This small town was really in in fear at this point. There was a murderer on the loose, and the police were really no close to finding out who it was. The police now began to investigate the mysterious Bronco that Ken Smith remembered seeing on the shoulder of the road close to the salon. The police released the composite done by the police sketch artist from Diane's description, and they also asked the public for any information on this Bronco. Calls came flooding in about the Bronco, but one Bronco in particular caught the attention of detectives. This Bronco belonged to a woman named Mary Ann Vick. When police went to visit Marianne, they found out that her 17-year-old son, Jonathan, had been the one that was driving the Bronco. The police asked Marianne if they could interview her son, and she was extremely uncooperative and even became really hostile with the police. But because Jonathan was a minor at the time, there really wasn't much the police could do. However, there was still a murderer on the loose, and there was a good chance that murderer was driving a Bronco. People in town kept calling into the police station reporting the Vicks Bronco. This actually infuriated Marianne to the point that she contacted the media and told them that the police had been harassing her family. She even put up a sign on the Bronco that said, quote, save your quarter. This vehicle has already been checked. Don't call it into law enforcement anymore, end quote. Police had to cover all their bases with the Vicks family, so they drove Ken Smith by the Vicks home to check out the Bronco. Smith saw the Bronco parked at the Vicks residence, but said he wasn't sure what it was about the Bronco, but he didn't think that was the one. Frustrated, the police decided to move on. Time continued to go by and the case went cold, but it was not forgotten. After a few years, John Douglas, who is a former FBI special agent, was called in to put together a psychological profile of the killer. Douglas profiled the killer as, quote, guy next door, just not successful. He believed that the killer had a dominant personality and that perhaps he had tried to hit on Dana, and when she did not reciprocate, he snapped. Douglas was quoted as saying, the person responsible is not a ghoulish individual. So the murderer was not just some guy passing on the interstate. He had shown extreme aggression towards Dana, and Douglas believed that he most likely knew her. Dana was a very attractive woman, and it really wasn't that uncommon for men to stop by her salon and just hit on her or, you know, flirt with her. So at this point, detectives had taken DNA samples from about 30 different men searching for a match to the semen that was found on Dana's body. However, none of the DNA matched. Two years went by, and in 1997, there seemed to be a break in the case. An informant from jail told the police that his cellmate, Russell Trevor Quinn, claimed that he had raped and killed a blonde-haired woman in her salon in Roebuck. Quinn fit the makeup of the killer, and he was already in jail for a similar charge. He was in for rape and for tying a woman to a tree. He had been released from jail just three days prior to Dana's murder, and just like Dana's killer, had also stolen a Bronco. The saleswoman, Diane, even picked Quinn out from a lineup, so the police believe that they finally have their perpetrator. So the police took a sample of Quinn's DNA, and to everyone's surprise, he actually was not a match. They were really back to square one with the investigation, and years went by without any movement in this case until, quite literally, a new sheriff came to town. Sheriff Chuck Wright picked up the case in 2005. He is quoted as saying that, He doesn't believe in cold cases, only old cases. Sheriff Wright strongly believed that the families and victims needed justice and closure, so he actually would post the photos of the victims of unsolved murders at the front of his office. He didn't want the community to ever forget about these victims. At the time that Sheriff Wright arrives on the scene, 10 years has gone by since the death of Dana. Ashley, Dana's daughter, was now 18 years old and was really the spitting image of her deceased mother. 
One day, Ashley took her car to the mechanic shop for an oil change. One of the mechanics on staff that day, named Michael Pace, asked a coworker about Ashley. She had been in a few weeks earlier, and Michael was just curious who she was. His coworker mentioned that she was Dana Satterfield's daughter. Something about seeing Ashley triggered something in Michael's mind, because he actually had no idea that Dana had had a daughter. And of course, this story is still big news in this town. It's been 10 years, but there's 2,000 people in this town. It's an unsolved murder. Like, this is still a topic of conversation. He had a secret that he had been holding on to for years, and it had begun to weigh on him. He realized that he had information that could possibly solve this case. He decided to spill the secret he had been keeping for the past 10 years and told his boss that he knew something about this murder. And that's when Michael began telling him about an old high school friend named Jonathan Vick. You may remember the name Vick from earlier. Marianne Vick, the lady who made the sign for her Bronco, it's the same Vick. This was her son Jonathan that Michael was speaking of, the same guy she would not allow to speak to the police. After speaking to his boss, Michael knew that he needed to go to the police, and that's actually exactly what he did. And we're going to get into exactly what Michael knew right after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. My eyesight started its gradual decline about 10 years ago, and each year I find that my prescription has changed slightly again. One thing I've learned over the years is that stylish eyewear comes at a cost, and sometimes it's a pretty steep cost. When I'm picking out glasses that will be front and center on my face every day, I want them to look nice as well as be affordable because I also need them to see. And that's why I was so excited to learn about Warby Parker. Warby Parker glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses, and each pair is custom fit with lenses that include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. I received my home try-on kit and love that I was able to give them a spin and see exactly how they looked as well as how they felt before I made the perfect pick. But what about our friends who prefer contacts? Allow me to introduce you to Scout by Warby Parker. Comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses that are made from a super moist material that resists drying, ensuring lasting hydration and comfort. You can order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5 and then receive $5 off your next order. We all want glasses that aren't just affordable, they also look good. And because Warby Parker knows it's hard to pick glasses without trying them on, they offer a free home try-on program. You can order five pairs of glasses and try them on for free for five days with no obligation to buy. They ship free and include a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com moms to take the quiz and order your free home try-on or to learn more about Scout Daily Contact Lenses. That's warbyparker.com moms. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it's truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. before the break, we were talking about this guy, Michael, who worked at the mechanic shop, who was telling his boss about this connection that he possibly had to the murder of Dana, or at least he had some kind of information. So Michael was going to go to the police. So he told the police that night that as he was getting off work, Jonathan appeared at his job and offered to give Michael a ride home. In the car, Jonathan started talking about a woman named Dana, and Michael described this as really just typical 17-year-old boy, you know, chit-chat. It was nothing too obscene, but not something you would want your mom to catch you talking about. So Jonathan told Michael that he was going to ask Dana out. 
Dana was 27 years old at this time, and Jonathan is only 17, as we said. So Michael didn't really take Jonathan's comments too seriously and pretty much just laughed it off. Michael said that's when the mood immediately changed in the car and Jonathan became irate. Jonathan then dropped Michael off at home and mentioned that he was going to get a haircut. A few days later, Michael saw Jonathan in a pool hall and out of the blue, Jonathan told Michael that something is going on and if he told anyone, then he would be killed. So Michael was really confused by Jonathan's comment, but when he found out about Dana's murder, he started to put two and two together. This was the last time that Michael and Jonathan ever spoke. So you have to remember at this time, Michael is 17 and he feels that this is a real threat. This is scary to him. You know, he's thinking like, oh my gosh, did my, you know, my friend here like do something terrible or, you know, what's going on here? This was, he was scared of this kid. So Michael knew he had to do something, but he was in fear for his own life, so he didn't know what to do. Michael attempted to reach out a few times to police through an anonymous line, but since he wouldn't provide a sworn statement, not much could be done. Jonathan was also a minor at the time, and good old Marianne was doing her best to keep him out of the picture. Remember how earlier the FBI profiler mentioned the murderer was most likely the guy next door, just not very successful? Well, that was Jonathan. Soon after the murder of Dana, Jonathan joined the Marines where he ran into all sorts of problems. A discharge letter from the Marine Corps called him a disgrace to the military and uniform. The letter went as far as stating that the Marine Corps was not a babysitting institution and that Jonathan had received paychecks that he did not deserve. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Yeah. The military saying like, yeah, like that's, oof, yikes. Somehow, Jonathan managed to stay in the Marine Corps for three years before getting a general discharge. In the years after being discharged from the Marine Corps, Michael bounced from job to job. He actually held a total of 57 jobs. He had conflict after conflict with supervisors and coworkers, as well as two arrests for domestic violence and malicious injury. Jonathan was also the suspect in the case of his former fiance named Heather Sellers, who went missing in 2002. This is actually a case that to this day has still not been solved. In August of 2005, things were different. When Michael came forward with this information about Jonathan, Jonathan was actually newly married and had an infant at home. Jonathan was no longer a minor, so they didn't need Marianne's permission to speak to him. But once again, Marianne stepped in and threatened to sue the police for harassment, stating that her family had already been investigated and deemed innocent. During the investigation, police tracked down a woman who had a child with Vic five years earlier. The woman confirmed what police already believed about him, which was that he was controlling and violent. She also claimed that he had driven her by Dana's salon and told her that the police were trying to pin a murder on him and that he told her that if she ever crossed him, she would end up just like Dana. Wow. Yeah. So with Jonathan's past, the threatened ex-girlfriend, the missing fiance, the discharge from the Marine Corps, police felt like they were getting closer and closer to piecing this puzzle together once and for all. They believed the story went down something like this. On that dreadful Monday night, Jonathan went to the salon to ask Dana for a date. She laughed him off, which infuriated him and caused him to snap, at which point he sexually assaulted her and strangled her in a violent rage. Police had a lot of evidence. They were just lacking the one thing, which was Jonathan's DNA. At this point, Jonathan knew that the police, you know, had reopened this case and were looking into it again. And he started to move around and change his address a lot until the police were finally able to catch up with him. The police contacted Jonathan and he agreed to meet up so that they could collect his DNA. However, he was a no-show. Remember Sheriff Chuck Wright, who was the new sheriff in town, he said, quote, I am sure he was wanting us to forget about the case, but that just wasn't going to happen. Wright said by cracking the case, he hoped people would gain confidence in the police department. And it was really a message to the bad guys that, you know, they have this technology and they're going to use it. So they were encouraging people to just go ahead and talk to them because they were going to catch them anyway. With all that, the chase was on. So with the help of the U.S. Marshals, they finally located Jonathan at a post office and brought him in. And he was, of course, then compelled to give a DNA sample. 
So can you imagine after they've spoken to Michael and he gives such a detailed story that he tried to give before but was too nervous to identify himself that he's now told them and they're like, wow, this is the same guy. He had the Bronco. Look at all these other things going on. And now you go look for the guy and he just keeps moving. So it doesn't take long for Jonathan's DNA to match the DNA sample retrieved at the scene of the crime. In fact, his DNA came back as a probability of 900 million to one. Had his DNA been tested back in 1995, his DNA would have likely only have been 1,000 to one due to the technology at the time. So this is just like slam dunk DNA at this point. Jonathan Vick was arrested just a few days later and Dana's family was elated. In 2006, after a five-day trial, Jonathan Vick was convicted of murder, kidnapping, and criminal sexual assault. It took the jury only 30 minutes to come up with a sentence. During the trial, Jonathan stood in front of the jury and cried. He said justice for Dana was not done because they had the wrong guy. He was given a life sentence plus 60 years. He was not eligible for the death penalty because he was a minor at the time of the crime. The police believe that Dana was his first victim, but they don't believe that she was his last. There is still the open case of his missing fiance, Heather Sellers. So what has life been like in prison for Jonathan? It's really just like you'd imagine, full of violence. In 2009, he was charged with assaulting a police officer and was then given an additional three years to his already really long sentence. Jonathan's mother and wife, however, believe that the police got it wrong and still claim his innocence. As for Ashley Satterfield, who was Dana's daughter, she went on to work for the police department and became a victim advocate in a detention center. She now works with families whose loved ones have been murdered. Becoming a victim advocate was a way for her to turn something traumatic into something positive and to not let it control her for the rest of her life, she stated. She has yet to forgive Jonathan Vick. She says forgiveness will come when he admits to what he has done. It's amazing she was able to, you know, turn this into something positive like she was talking about. But also this story going back to Michael and basically seeing Ashley, having no idea Dana had a daughter, that triggering something in his mind and really getting this whole case new life is so amazing to me that she looks like her mom. Therefore, he was interested in what was going on. It made him think about it. It's just crazy. Yeah. Well, I I love story. I mean, I don't love that somebody was killed, you know, of course, but I love stories that have this type of ending, I guess, whenever they do finally, they are finally able to figure out, you know, what happened in the case and the family will never get their, their mom and their sister and everybody back. But I always am happy whenever even like, especially after a lot of time has passed and the case is kind of an old case or a cold case. And then they're able to like something crazy happens like that. And they're able to just solve it just like that. So Yeah, I do always love those kind of outcomes in these kind of cases. Okay, we are going to get into last thing before we go. It's a little different this week. I'm so excited about it. As you may have noticed, sometimes Mandy and I pronounce things different than expected. Yeah, Yeah, incorrectly. (laughs) We give it our own little thing. Sometimes it's Florida talk. Sometimes it's just, you know, you think a word is one thing and it's really not. And so this week... We asked our Facebook group to give us some names of cities and towns because this is the most the thing we most screw up, I think. We screw up a lot, but this is probably yeah. the number one thing we get emails about. So we are going to give each other certain names of cities and towns, countries, whatever that people have sent in, give it to the other person, and they are going to try to pronounce it. And we will tell each other if we are correct or incorrect. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. So we both picked out some city names that we wanted the other one to try and say, and then we ourselves looked up the correct definition. So Melissa's going to look at my list and she's going to try and read these cities and we're all going to hopefully have a nice little giggle while she does that. And then I will let her know how it's actually pronounced and then vice versa. So we'll just go back and forth and do that and we'll see how good we are at reading city names. So this should be really interesting. (laughs) And honestly, at this point, after you hear this, you should probably just feel bad for us and be happy we can say any words because (laughs) I have a really bad feeling about (laughs) how we're going to do. Okay, Mandy, do you want to go read yours first? Or do you You want to? You want to try and and read mine first? Try and guess the first one? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Okay. So the first one you have is spelled (laughs) P-F-U, I already hate it, G-E-R-V-I-L-L-E, and it's apparently a town in Texas. So 
I'm going to make the P and F sound similar. I'm going to say, I'm going to call it Fugerville. Is the correct Wait. answer Fugerville? Are you just leaving out a letter, Melissa? Yes, absolutely. And I'm making my U sound like a U instead of an uh. So I feel like I've mixed it up there. I got Ville right. I know that. You're close, actually. But yeah, there's a L in between there. Um, yeah. Do you see? I see it now. <laughs> <laughs> so P-F-L-U-G-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. Do I want to change my answer? Uh-huh. Pflugerville. That's actually right. And I'm so upset that you like instantly knew that that was going to be a silent P. I'm telling you, I don't know why. And this is not boding well for why we mispronounce things if I got it right. Okay. All right. So Mandy, (laughs) you can do this next one. I believe in you. You go ahead and do mine. Okay. So this is a city in Utah. And I saw this one suggested several times. And obviously, it looks very simple, but I don't know what it is exactly. So I'm going to say that it is Toel. (laughs) (laughs) So it's spelled T-O-O-L-E. And you said Toel. Yeah. (laughs) So can I tell you, you got the middle part right. (laughs) You got the end part. So it's Tuella. Oh. Oh. That's kind of like nice. And it sounds very like dainty. Yes, it's a dainty town. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dainty word. So yeah. Okay. Okay. That was pretty I can see how people definitely would get that wrong just by reading it. I would say tool easily. Tool Utah. Well, I figured that wasn't it because that was like too obvious. So I figured that wasn't going to be it. Okay. All right. So next one is, I hate this, W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R, Massachusetts. Okay. This one was suggested a lot of times too. Okay. Um, hmm. Worcester. <laughs> <laughs> like the sauce? Yeah. And I can't say that either. So we'll see. Okay. So my sister actually lived here and I visited her here. My nephew was actually born here. It's actually Worcester, which doesn't even I'm make sorry. sense. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> that's it. That's how you say it. And I was confused too until I heard my sister's fiance say it and then – that I knew. And yeah, so that's how it Say is. Say it again. Worcester. 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 Yeah. So they just took out O-R-C-E-S <laughs> and then just like coughed in the middle. That is crazy. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for them. <laughs> okay. So the next one, Mandy, there you go. There's mine. It's This is what I'm calling a Michigan redemption. This is from Michigan. We screwed up Michigan last week. So here's your chance to redeem us. <laughs> Okay, I don't even know, but I hope and pray that there is a silent letter situation (laughs) happening. So spell it out if anyone wants to play along with us at home. This is in Michigan. Okay, so it is spelled Y-P-S-I-L-A-N-T-I. I'm going to say, I don't even know. I don't, oh boy, (laughs) Ypsilanti? You know what? Mandy, take off that Y and you got it. It's Ypsilanti. No way. I can't believe I came mm-hmm. that close. <laughs> I, I like how encouraging we are of each other for almost getting these right. And I know. <laughs> still butchering them. Okay, so I'm going to the next one on yours. And I saw this one a lot. P-U-Y-A-L-L-U-P, Washington. Okay. <laughs> this one was suggested a bunch too, yeah. I tried to pick ones that like a lot of people wanted to hear I tried to do ones that would be really difficult for you. So good for you. Okay. So the next one is, this one is pull you up, like pull you up a chair. (laughs) So I actually thought that also was the pronunciation. That was my first thought because that's literally what it looks like. It looks like something like that. Or I was thinking like a, like a kid's, like a toddler pull up diaper or something. Mm, No, it's actually pronounced Puyallup. Uh -uh. Yeah. There is extra vowels there. Mm-hmm. There, that is taking some serious. <laughs> like I don't know. I don't like that. I'm sorry. You're pull up, pull, pull up, pull up a chair. That's what I'm going to call you from now on. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we can both be wrong because I mean, if you ever need to say it to me, I will know what you're talking about. So you can just okay, great. <laughs> Okay, Mandy, there is your next one. This is another one from Washington, and a lot of people Mm -hmm. suggested it, and like they thought that you would know how to say it already, and thought that I would just be the laughing stock of everything. No, no, no. It's from 90 Day Fiance. That's the only reason I know. 
uh, what it is. Okay, so this is another one in Washington, as I just said. I'm going to say, okay, it's S-E-Q-U-I-M. I'm going to say- Seems simple enough. It does seem simple. Okay, I'm going to say sequim? Sequim? <laughs> it's not bad. Now, do me a favor. Take out the E and try it. What? Take out the E and pronounce it like you would without the E. Squim? Good job, Mandy. You got it. it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Why? Why are there so many things with unnecessary letters? I don't know. This is like Prince. They're just like putting symbols in the middle of these things for no reason just to mess with us. I'm not happy about it. I'm really not happy about this next one you chose for me. (laughs) And it's spelled P-O-M-P-A-N-O-O-S-U-C. And it's in Vermont. I'm going to go really like outside the box here. And this one's easy, I think. Super easy. Is it puk? (laughs) (laughs) There's several silent letters in the middle and it's just puk. Well, I feel like after I saw, after I listened to the pronunciation, then I thought it was actually like it made sense to me. So the way you say that is Pompanusic. Okay. Doesn't that, Why didn't I guess that? Doesn't that that actually sense? makes a lot of sense. It really does. It looks like it. Once you hear it, then you're like, oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Okay. I can get down with that one. Good <laughs> <Okay>. job. <laughs> okay. So the next one on your list, I think. Oh, dear goodness. It's a national okay. park in Canada. We're trying to represent everyone and ruin everyone's yes. pronunciation. Okay. So this is a national park in Canada, and it is spelled K-E-J-I-M-K-U-J-I-K. Yeah, I think you missed an I in there, but don't worry, it won't help you. (laughs) There's so many dotted letters and K's in this. It is. Okay, so I'm going to say Keji Mikujik. (laughs) You know what? It sounds a little like Kujo. It's close. It is Kejima Kujik. That's very close. Kejima Kujik. Yeah. Maybe you said it. I feel like I I got that one right. I feel like I pronounced that one correctly. (laughs) Personally, I think we're four for four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> giving us all stuff for X. Okay. So the last one, I feel like people just wanted us to say this one because it's this reminds me of um Florida ones. There's a town called or what is it? We wa we reminds yeah, me of those. This does seem very like it does sound similar to Florida. Like towns a lot of Florida towns. Yeah. yeah. So the last one is C O O S A W H A T C H I E in South Carolina. I'm going to pronounce it Kuza what? <laughs> <laughs> so this is another silent letter. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just take out the W and you have it. Kusa Hatchie. Yeah. Nice oh, job. I like that one. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, but I totally did the same thing. Like I was like, Kusa what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So okay, great. so the last... The last one, I have to be honest, that you're going to do, I had to consult a linguistics uh, liaison in New York, oh, our friend boy. Nikki P. Oh, yes. I love Nikki P. Yeah, she's great. Because there's two different pronunciations. Actually, I heard two pronunciations several times when I looked into this one. So you have a chance of being right, and I have a chance of being wrong, whatever way <laughs> you decide to do this. So Mandy, here's your last one. Oh, boy. Okay, so this is a in New York, um, and it's spelled S-K-A-N-E-A-T-E-L-E-S, New York. I uh, – it just reminds me of Skittles, but obviously it's it, not called Skittles. Can I tell you that's exactly why I picked it for you? Because you love Skittles. No lie. Oh that's gosh. why I picked it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with um, Scaniatl, Scaniatl, please. You're doing so well or so bad, depending on whose pronunciation is correct. <laughs> so our I friend, feel like I have a good start, but then my tongue just doesn't cooperate with the end of that word. So the two that I got is Skinny Atlas. Skinny oh. Atlas. Yeah. And then our linguistics liaison said that it's Scanny Atlas. And she's from the area. So I feel like I chased, I feel that. I trust that more than the robot voice on YouTube that gave it to me. Oh, gosh. But I think you were pretty close. Not bad. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was so fun. And now you all can see that we truly are terrible at pronouncing city names. So if we pronounce something wrong in your area, it's okay. I'm sorry. 
I am sorry, but it's okay. <laughs> We're absolutely doing our best, but just know it's difficult for us to speak sometimes. So <laughs> we, yeah. we we will try our best. We really do hit the YouTube when we're not sure, but sometimes words are spelled very like Like you think normal? you're saying, you think you're going to be saying it right no matter what. It's like foolproof. But I guess what we have learned from this is that we should just do a quick little Google search. How do you pronounce this city? Even if it seems obvious, because obviously it's not always so obvious. So Laura in our fun. Facebook group gave us one, C-A-I-R-O, which I know is Cairo, Georgia. But if you saw it or somebody else, they would say Cairo. So if you said Cairo, everyone in Cairo would be like, you're an idiot. So Cairo is in seems, Egypt, right? Yeah. So that one seems like it's an easy one, though, like if you see it. So we'll be better. We'll do better and we'll be better. I we will try to promise. anyway. Yeah, yeah. We'll see how long that lasts. Okay, so we are done for the show for this week, but please stick around for a promo that is going to be from the show Pretend with Javier. You guys have probably heard us play his promo before, but this week it's different. This week, he invited somebody that knew little to nothing about real life things, but knew a lot about reality TV, and that someone was me. And we talked all about the Joe Schmo show. Did you know about this show? It was a reality TV show, I think early 2000s. I feel like I've heard of it, Melissa. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's okay because now is your opportunity to learn about it. And so he had me as a part of like the interviews he does. He does so many cool things. And so I felt like a total imposter doing that stuff. But I hope you guys really like it. Stick around. You'll hear the promo and check it out. It is out now. All right, guys. Uh, we will see you next week. Same time, same place, different story. Bye. Bye. Hello, Moms Murder fans. It's Javier with Pretend, a podcast about people pretending to be someone else. This week, I'm going to tell you about a real-life Truman Show, but I need help from an expert who watches an unnatural amount of reality TV to help me out with this story. Describe the premise of Lap of Luxury. What did he really think he was going to win? He thought... He was going to win a hundred grand. Uh, he thought it was just like a, a big brother type show. So I called up my friend, Melissa, with the Moms and Murder podcast. Listen as a contestant on a reality TV show learns what? that everyone he's around is yeah. an actor. <laughs> Every- <laughs> what is going on? What is going on? Check out the latest episode of Pretend titled The Joe Schmo Show, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.